0: Well, I want to um, say another welcome. If you missed the start of the service, it's good to, um, it's good to be able to uh, do this together, isn't it? To worship Jesus on this Lord's Day, on this Sunday. And my intention today is to take you into the next part of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to pick up in the, the 11th chapter, and we're going to read the account of the, what is described as the triumphal entry of Jesus. Um, we know it in the church calendar as Palm Sunday and Although, of course, our church is not one that particularly follows the church calendar, you'll be familiar with with that being a practice within the church at large. And this is the original account, this is the event as it took place on that particular day um, millennia ago. And I want to read to you these first 11 verses of Mark 11, and it says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. A colt being a young donkey, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? I'm tying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches or the palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he'd looked around at everything, it was as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, up to now, there's been quite a meandering and long journey in the Gospel of Mark toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And uh, it's taken time for Jesus to arrive at this point where he's going to enter the capital city and the place where the temple is and the seat of worship and the seat of government in the nation. And it's taken his time to reach this point. And really, what we see here is something of a very significant moment in in the gospel story. And it's really a tipping point or a point of no return. That phrase um, "point of no return" comes from aviation. It marks the point in the journey of an aircraft where it, it crosses a threshold in which it has, no longer has enough fuel to return back to the airport from which it came. It, reached, it reaches a point of no return. It has to arrive at some alternative destination. And this is where we get to in the Gospel of Mark. These first uh, 10 chapters of the Gospel have largely been about Jesus traveling and preaching and ministering to the crowds and healing the sick in a way that has ga- gathered more attention but all, at the same time has maintained a level of secrecy around his true identity. And you'll see this all through those 10 chapters, that whenever somebody says, you're the Christ, and it's usually people who are uh, being affected by demonic powers, actually, uh, Jesus wants to suppress that statement. He wants to suppress that expectation that he is this messianic ruler who's come to change the world. He wants to keep the whole thing somewhat under wraps until now. And here at this particular point in the gospel, something changes. There's a shift that takes place. And Jesus goes from his grass level, grassroots ministry to individuals and crowds, healing the sick, preaching the gospel and maintaining secrecy about his identity to a declaration of who he is. And suddenly the events of the next chapters of Mark's gospel are we're rapidly approaching the moment of Christ's death at this point. Even though we still have a third of the Gospel left, the entire of, uh, the rest of the Gospel of Mark is actually dedicated to just one week in the life of Jesus and his ministry, which is amazing because the first 10 chapters were about the three years that have run up to this point, and now all that's to follow. Just to give you a sense of just how powerful this particular moment is, everything that follows in the Gospel of Mark is, is the compressed and um, detailed explanation of what happened in the final week of the life of Christ before he was crucified and before the resurrection. Now, I want to try and explain to you then the the significance of this moment and of what Christ is doing. And I think that a word that captures the tenor of it or the, 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 the ethos of what's happening here is the word subversion or subversive. And that's a word that defines the actions to seek to overthrow powers. If you engage in subversive activity, then you're engaged in activity that's seeking to overthrow powers that be. And this is what is happening here. It's not a direct, full frontal assault upon Rome or upon the puppet king, Herod, It's not an attempt to set up an alternative government in Jerusalem with a a political administration. It's none of those things. But what it is, is a point at which Jesus publicly claims to be the king of this kingdom that he has set up. And you have to understand what an enormous moment this is. When Jesus elsewhere talks about this kingdom, he describes it in terms that could not be described as modest. He says, for example, in Matthew 13, that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. You know mustard from a jar of mustard, What the seed, how small the seeds are. He says, a man took and sowed in his field, and it's the smallest of all seeds. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he's using... Language that comes from the book of Daniel it speaks about one of the great emperors as being a tree. And a great empire where all the birds which represent other nations nest in its branches. And Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom's going to be like. He then says in the next, in the next section, he says uh, that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which is what we put, a lot of you have been making sourdough in lockdown. Now you know what leaven is. He says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. When you add leaven to a batch of flour... Before long, within hours, the entire batch of dough is going to be pervaded by the power of this leaven. It's going, to change, it's going to change the dough radically at a molecular and chemical level. And Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. It's going to be the biggest thing in the world. And it's also going to touch every part of life like leaven that spreads into the whole batch of dough. These are not modest claims. So although what Jesus is doing here in Jerusalem on this particular day... And this week before he's crucified could not be described as political in the sense that we understand it. It is, of course, emphatically political because what he is doing here is he's establishing his claim to the messianic throne and his rule that will change the entire world. And I want you to understand the ways in which this is a subversive act. I'm going to show you a few dimensions of this. And we want to begin by just acknowledging, on the face value, the most obvious fact here, which is that this is a claim which is subversive. His claim is subversive. What he does is he, <clears throat> right from the start, overturns our 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 minimised versions of who Jesus is in our minds. We think of Jesus as a philosopher teacher and he was that his teaching has changed the world and even if you're not a Christian I think every one of you ought to be able to be familiar with the teaching of Jesus to understand just how much it's affected the world in which we live he was a philosopher teacher but we can't reduce him to that and nor can we reduce him to this kind of compassionate healer which of course is the way in which he interacted with the crowds. And this is part of the reason why we're drawn to him. We see see that he's gentle. We see that he's lowly. We see that he is compassionate and loving. And that's certainly true of him. But that isn't the entire picture of who Christ is and the way in which he presents himself to us in the Gospels. He also shows us in this passage just how definite and how absolutely deliberate he is in his claim for this throne, this messianic throne of David, which was prophesied from millennia and centuries before the coming of Christ. And he does this in a few ways in the story. Let me just quickly show you what these ways are. One of them is in the plan itself, when he he tells his disciples what to do. And he says, go into the village and find this colt tied there and untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you why you need it, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. What he's doing here is he's self-consciously stepping into one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament, which is in Zechariah chapter 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is no accident. Jesus, by doing this, by asking his disciples to get hold of this donkey so that he could ride on it into Jerusalem is enacting this prophecy very deliberately, which ought to immediately make you pause and and, and, and wake up, in a sense, to exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. He's not allowing us to just confine him to this image of being a, a wise teacher or a gentle and compassionate master. He's saying, no, I'm more than that. And it's also true in the fact, his choice of this particular animal, this unbroken colt, a donkey that had never been ridden. In the Old Testament, an unbroken animal was considered sacred, sacred to God. And therefore his claim upon this animal is in a sense saying is, is a divine claim. And more than that, in the Mishnah, which is the contemporary sort of commentary on the Old Testament, which the Jewish rabbis recorded, um, they describe um, the, the fact that a, 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 nobody else could ride a king's horse. So when Jesus is, is using this unbroken animal He's really, he's really taking upon himself the claim that he is a king, that he is divine and that he's the Lord of all. And he, he tells them this, this seemingly innocuous phrase. Where he says that they're to report that the Lord has need of it. And you read that and you think, well, that sounds like nothing. You just Your eyes scan over it. But of course, the language of the Lord, that's the word that's used to describe God himself in the Bible. So when he's saying the Lord has need of it, Jesus is in a veiled way declaring not only his kingship but also his divinity. And I I, I want you to understand just how radical and and, uh, subversive these claims are and what he's doing in this moment, why this marks a particularly important tipping point in the Gospel of Mark. This act of subversion, this claim to be king matters in a couple of ways. It matters at the global and political level. And we can see that just in the way the crowds understand what's going on here, their waving of palm branches, for example, um, was a nationalistic symbol. The palm branch was a symbol of Jewish um, nationalist pride. So they're waving of palm branches, and they're laying them on the street as saying, "You know, we, we, don't give, um, we don't give fealty to Herod and we don't give fealty to Caesar. This is our king. This is the king that we want." And more than that, also the laying down of the cloaks. This actually echoes an interesting moment in the Old Testament, which is in the book of uh, Two Kings, where an old, a king, Ahab, who was a very wicked king, has died, and his son, Joram, has taken the throne. And the prophet Elisha sends a, a, one of his sort of junior prophets to one of the generals in the army, a man called Jehu, and he tells him to go and anoint Jehu with oil and proclaim him to be king. Uh, instead of the actual king, who's Joram. And he goes. the prophet goes and fulfills this and tells him that his job is to overthrow the, the king who sat on the throne. And so he makes this military commander the new king of the nation. And at that point, Jehu J- is in a gathering with the other generals of the army. And uh, they, they say, what did he come and tell you? Come on, tell us. And he, at first he shrugs it off and says, oh, you know these prophets, just, they just do strange things. And they say, no, 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 tell us, what did the prophet say to you just now and he tells them well he anointed with with oil and he said that I would be the next king and at that point the generals of the army in an act essentially of mutiny and of subversion take off their cloaks and lay them down on the floor in front of this king Jehu to say we are yours we're going to serve you we're not serving the incumbent uh, the king who sat on the throne we want to serve you you're now our king and of course, when the crowds do this, therefore, with Jesus, with these palm branches and with their cloaks, they are saying in a way which, ought, which still has resonance with us today, they are saying that Jesus is king and that he is therefore ruler over all the authorities of the world. And it has this global, political, powerful implication. But it's not just something that we can kind of Dismisses out there in the principalities and powers, to use the language of the New Testament, as something which is true in a theoretical sense but doesn't have any impact upon your life or upon my life. You see, when Jesus is is making this claim uh, to be king, this claim is very personal. And what I mean by that is he's making a claim upon you. You think about this action of taking off the cloaks and of laying them down on the floor. This is an act a very personal act of fealty and of submission, of subjugation even of people's hearts toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that actually is what it means to be a Christian. In the book of Romans, when Paul is trying to, in one of his many moments where he defines the gospel, he uses this sentence to define what it means to be a Christian. He says, if you you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now I know that some of you are considering the claims of the Christian faith. Part of that is coming to an intellectual um, belief or agreement with the fact claims of the faith. Was Jesus crucified? Did he rise from the dead? These are utterly crucial questions that you have to engage with. You can't bypass them. And it's impossible to be a Christian without assenting to the truth of those things, which is what faith is. It's saying, I'm persuaded that Jesus died for my sins and that he was raised from the dead and that his resurrection was real and that it marks a turning point in history and that it's therefore our future hope that we'll be raised and we'll live with him in eternity. You have to believe those things. But Paul doesn't say that it's enough just to believe those things. He doesn't say it's enough just to have faith that those things are true. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And that language of being able to describe him Lord is of course the ability of your heart to say that Jesus is the one who I want to obey from this point on. It's it's the overthrow of your personal autonomy and your desire to rule your own life in independence from Jesus and instead surrender your life to him because it's impossible to say that he's your saviour without also saying that he is your Lord. When Jesus dies for us, sheds his blood for us, he does so to purchase our lives. And it's not possible to be a Christian who merely believes that the gospel means that you be forgiven of your sins without also then completely laying down your life before him. And I want you to understand how subversive this is. It's not just the case that he is subverting the rulers and the authorities of the age, which at the time was Rome, at the time was King Herod in, in Israel, and, and every government that has stood since. It's not just the case that it works out there. It also means that he's subverting your autonomy, that he's a subversive king who comes to overthrow your own heart, and that you are only a Christian if you are somebody who says, Jesus is Lord, and you want to lay your life before him and say, Lord Jesus, you're my king if in a sense you can take off your cloak and lay it on the ground before him. And it may well be the case that you've reached a point, maybe you've been journeying with us for a few weeks and listening in on these online services, and maybe you've reached a point where you can say, I think I'm ready. You know, when you hear the story of Jesus coming in to come and claim his authority and rule over all the earth and over your heart, you say, I want him to be my king. And if you are ready at this point for that, then I want to encourage you, do not miss the opportunity that lies right in front of you today. The Bible is very clear about the urgency of responding to Jesus. We often put things off in life, especially the big decisions, don't we? And it's understandable. We put things off because certain decisions in life are terrifying and you're worried about making a wrong decision. But if you feel like you've reached a point in your life or in your journey spiritually where you think, I actually believe that this Jesus is who he said he was. And I believe that he can change my life. I want to encourage you, do not delay. Don't waste a day. Don't waste even an hour. Even get on your knees right now and say to Jesus, Lord, I want to call you Lord of my life and I want you to save me from my sins. At that point, Christ claims you. He takes hold of your life. He comes to take his seat of authority in your heart, his position of rule on the throne in which you say, Lord, I'm no longer an autonomous person seeking my own version of freedom, which is really just slavery to sin. I instead want to serve you with my whole life, which is the definition of true freedom. Finding what I was made for on this earth. Discovering that I was made to serve you. And I want to urge you, exhort you, encourage you, plea with you. Make that decision and do it today. There's no doubt you know one or two Christians in the church who perhaps have introduced you to what we're doing here. Talk to them about this decision. Pray with them. Get on the phone with somebody. But don't delay. I want to stress the importance of that. And help you understand, all of us understand, that this strange moment in the gospel, which seems So twee in the light of our Palm Sunday services and bringing donkeys into churches and all the rest of it is not just a weird thing that happened in a land far away a long time ago. This is a moment that marks a turning point for all of humanity and therefore for you as an individual before the Savior. His claim is subversive. Let me show you another thing here. The entire approach or the plan or the method of Jesus is subversive in this way, and that it subverts all of our expectations. This is what I mean. I I think this is so vital for us to keep this in mind, especially at the season we're in with the global and political climate that we're in. Christ did come to change the world. I read to you the parable of the leaven that works its way into the batch of dough. We believe with all our hearts that Christ came to change the world. And this is what the crowd believed which is why they take upon their lips some of the language of Psalm 118 when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're speaking about Jesus as a saviour who will come and deliver them and they, they declare him to be David's messianic son who will rule. And all of that is true, of course. But we also know that the Jerusalem crowds, or the crowds that followed Christ into Jerusalem, perhaps they were from other parts of the country, we know that their understanding of this moment was actually wrong. And that what they thought Jesus would do, he, he actually didn't do. This is crucial for us to think about as Christians because so often our own ways in which we imagine Christ will change the world are not the ways in which he actually works. He subverts our expectations. And I want to show you a couple of things that come through in this story which just underline this for us. Notice, for one thing, his posture of humility. So often in the realm of politics, when a person claims to have the answers, claims to be able to change the world, they do not approach us with a posture of humility, but rather one of a carefully managed brand to display their competence and their power and even their glory so that we'll believe in them, so that we'll actually put our confidence in them, so that we'll either elect them or follow them or give them our allegiance. Jesus doesn't act like this. What Jesus rather does is he adopts this Amazing posture of humility in that he deliberately choose, chooses to ride upon a donkey. And uh, you know, it's impossible to look dignified when you're riding on a donkey. I mean, they're small animals to begin with, and anyone riding a donkey always looks a little bit silly. It'd be like um, the Queen if she were to go on a state visit uh, to another country and, and do one of the things where she parades in front of the crowds. If she was to do it, in a Toyota Prius. You know, reliable car, have no problem with Toyota Priuses, very reliable, but also very dull, right? And, and do not in any way communicate the glory or the power or the authority or the sovereignty of her position in the world. And this is what Jesus chooses. You know, I, I drive um, a Toyota. It's been described by friends as a mommy wagon. And honestly, I find it one of the most Um, embarrassing and humiliating acts to drive this car as opposed to what I'd like to drive, but I have a large and growing family, so I have to drive this thing. And this is humiliating for me. It's humbling for me. And this is what Jesus does. He deliberately puts himself in a position where he's riding a donkey into Jerusalem. You know, a man on a donkey seeking to overthrow the powers of this world and, and Rome with all its legions and all its glinting metal swords and breastplates and all that stuff. And this man wearing a cloak, having not a possession in the world, using a borrowed animal. This is Jesus. This is the way he works. And actually this is a really important aspect of his rule. I don't know if you noticed the language and I read to you from this prophecy which he is enacting from Zechariah 9. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think that as Christians, whatever we believe about the way in which we're called to impact and change the world, we must not, we must not seek to repeat the mistakes of the church through the centuries which has sought to display its grandeur and its glory and its power, but has often come off as seeming arrogant. And rather, we must seek to proactively adopt the posture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes humble, who comes, in a sense, in a way which just totally subverts our expectations, and whose approach is so gentle. He's humble, and another thing about him, another way in which he subverts our expectations is his patience. You know, I don't know if you thought it odd the way in which the story ends but it just tells us in the last verse of this this account how he entered jerusalem went into the temple when he looked around at everything it was already late and he went out to bethany with the twelve it sounds it sounds a little bit like an account of one of your days on holiday you went into town had a look around got tired went home and went to bed it sounds like that it doesn't sound like a particularly grand way for the day to end there's no battle there's no confrontation at herod's palace there's no effort to overthrow the powers. And of course, why? Why? Because this is exactly how Jesus works. He has been in no hurry for centuries prior to this moment to arrive and display himself as king. There's been an expectation, a whisper that grew into a shout throughout the Old Testament pages about his coming. But Jesus was in no hurry. He waited for millennia before he arrived. And even when he reaches this moment and he, uh, where he publicly declares, I'm the king that you've been waiting for, he's not in a hurry to change the world. And in fact, the full implications of what this moment means don't really work themselves out for even the centuries that follow. We see three or four hundred years of the church being like leaven within the empire of Rome before Rome itself is transformed, before the the empire of Rome is transformed. It takes hundreds of years for the leaven to work its way through the batch of dough. Jesus is not in a rush. And I think we're mistaken when we engage in hurry and rush, seeking to press the kingdom value, seeking to press forward the rule of Christ on this earth. And we have to understand that the, the early church understood that Christ's role, Christ's method rather, was one of patience. It's been described by one author as the patient ferment of the early church. And I guess he's using the image of the leaven. Leaven gets into the dough and causes it to ferment, causes the the chemical reactions to, 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 to bring about its rising. But it was patient. And as Christians, our role in this world is to sit in a posture of humility and of patience under the rule of our Savior, knowing that the world is not what it was, now the world as it was at the time that Jesus came was a dark place. The Roman Empire was a dark place. It was a place in which a Roman man could basically have sex with whoever he wanted with no repercussions. It was a place in which you could throw babies onto hillsides if, you had, if your family was too large and leave them to be eaten by wolves. It was a place in which most of the populace was, was subjugated in, as bond servants or slaves. It was a place in which there was darkness and everybody's life was experiencing the oppression of an unjust um, authority, and an authoritative structure. And the early church just gets into the mix and begins sharing the gospel and loving one another, and sharing the gospel and loving one another. And through patience and persistence, through suffering well, eventually the whole empire is turned upside down. And this is Christ's role in, in, in the way he works in this world, through humility, through patience, through devotion to him. I ask you, why is this important? I think it's important because as long as we strive and long for Christ's rule, we cannot neglect or abandon his methods. And I think a few things are important. One is to prioritize godliness. This is unglamorous, but Jesus never betrayed his own uh, sort of decision and volition to serve God with his whole heart as a man of God and he never let his character be corrupted by the world in which he was engaged. And as Christians, we're called primarily to a life of holiness, holy hearts, holy attitudes, gracious lives. Jesus showed us how to suffer well also. The New Testament describes this as patient endurance and describes the rewards that follow patient endurance. This is the way of Christ, friends. The way of Christ is godliness and patient endurance. And we ought to also put on our, on our camera, as it were, the wide angle lens through which we can see the grand scope of history and understand that even if at times we agitate for more and we want to see change come about quickly, we have to understand that the work of God typically is slow and deliberate and persistent, and that the world is not what it was, as I was telling you a moment ago, 2,000 years ago, nor is it what it will be in the decades and centuries to come. And The gospel will triumph, but it will triumph in Christ's way and in Christ's timing and by his methods alone. He subverts all of our expectations. We want him to enter into conflict with the authorities. We want him to have a standoff with Rome. We want him to have a standoff with Herod. He doesn't do those things. He arrives in Jerusalem and then goes home to bed. This is Jesus. Let me show you a final thing about the way that this is subversive, and it's this He puts us in a position of subversion as His people. His people become a subversive reality on the earth. Now, let me show you. You're going to have to pay careful attention to what I'm saying here. It is not an accident that this story ends as it does. Jesus arise into Jerusalem making a messianic claim and then where does he go? He goes to the temple to have a look around at the temple. Why? If he's making a messianic claim, you might think that he would go elsewhere. And we need to understand that this is not a kind of deflating flop at the end of the story nor is it just a sightseeing tour that the temple was magnificent and worthy of a visit. This is a reflection of Christ's focus and his plan, and his way of changing the world. Now here's how this works out. He was less interested in the palace. He was not so interested in Herod's palace, where Herod ruled, and in the political realities of what were happening in his day. He had words to say about them from time to time, but generally he sidesteps that entire reality and has very little to say except pay your taxes. Why is that? For this reason... That for Christ, all of life flows from worship. That the temple is the critical thing. Because when the temple is corrupted, out of that flows corruption in the nation. And when the temple is offering a pure and spiritual worship to God, out of that flows righteousness and justice and everything that we want to see in this world. And so when Jesus comes to arrive to be this Messianic king in Jerusalem, and then he goes and has a look at the temple, we are seeing nothing less than his strategy for changing the world, the way in which he's going to bring about his rule and authority on planet Earth. How will that happen? Well, Christ saw, when he saw the temple, what he saw was a system that had become corrupted, You know, that, had, that was full of greed and power plays, a system that actually also was very exclusive and it was marked by a kind of ethnic exclusion in which the Jews were, were, were marked out from the rest of the world and, and actually withheld the good news of the things that they believed about God from the nations. And we see this, this playing out in the corruption of the temple. We see it as a failing institution. Unable to revolutionize and revive the hearts of the people. They should just become a kind of going through the motions, bringing your sacrifices to Jerusalem each year, you know, whatever you could afford and offering worship to God. What does Jesus do this week, the week that follows this moment? The next thing that he's going to do, he's going to clear the temple of all the money changers. And we're going to read that story probably next week. He's going to come in and bring purity back into the life and the heart of that house of prayer. He's going to render the temple null and void by the end of the week when he dies on the cross. You remember, some of you, how when Jesus is crucified, there is a supernatural act of God when the curtain of the temple, the, the curtain that that marked off the place where the the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the Holy of Holies, where that, that curtain is torn from top to bottom as though the very hands of God are ripping it open and destroying that whole system of worship. By the end of the week, Jesus will overthrow the temple to render it null and void of absolutely no significance to any of our lives ever again in all of history. And the temple has never been rebuilt after it was destroyed 40 years later by the Romans. And not just that, Jesus himself will become the foundation stone in the new temple that he's building, which is the church of Jesus, you and I, his people. This is his new temple. And this has enormous implications. I want you to see just the, what is going on here. The fact that Jesus looks around the temple at the end of this day and surveys the ground and thinks about his strategy and what he's going to do to change the world. This is not an insignificant moment. This is everything for us. Let me just speak to you about what this means at a personal level. At a personal level, it means that you, if you are a Christian, you're called to be a worshipper before anything else. And this is what God wants on earth. He wants men and women who will offer him worship. And this is what Jesus says in John 4. Do you remember this dialogue? How he discusses the, the reality of the temple in Jerusalem with a woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well in a village. And he says, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain,' which is in Samaria, "'nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If you ask me, what is the nature of the revolution which Jesus gave birth to on this day when he rode into Jerusalem on this donkey? The nature of that revolution was it? revolution in in worship it was the fact that suddenly Christ would come in and flatten as it were demolish as it were the temple and its power so that he could liberate true worship to go into all the world and for you and I to be those worshippers and what this means for you is that God wants above all he wants you to be a person who worships him in spirit and in truth who offers pure worship to God by the power of the Holy Spirit and in truth of the gospel and that when worship is right, when Christ is central in our lives, that is when the revolutionary power of God breaks out through our lives, when we become salt and light. Christians often get this the wrong way around. We think about the ways in which Christ wants to change the world and we want to be the salt, we want to do the light. But therefore, often we neglect the worship. And my greatest, most passionate desire for us as a church is that we as people will understand that we are first and foremost worshipers of Jesus. Everything else flows out from that. All the impact and all the ways in which God wants to use you to impact this world flows from your heart of worship. Please do not speak to me of the ways in which you want to impact this world if your heart is not set on Christ. Get your heart right first of all. Have a heart of worship. Come to him. Be devoted to him. Have a real and vivid life of prayer with him. Adore him. Make him, set him apart as holy in your heart. All these things must be true of you, must be the first and most important thing in your life, long before you think about the impact of that, because that will be the overflow of a life that is set on Christ. Thinking about this at the level of the church, our very existence is a subversive reality. Jesus didn't overthrow the old thing, the temple, in order to establish a void. He overthrew the old thing in order to start something new which will change the world. And I think about, there's so many places in the New Testament where we could go to explain this, but I think particularly about Ephesians 2, where Paul says that though you are no longer strangers and aliens, he's speaking to people who couldn't know God in the old temple system because they weren't Jews. He's talking about all of us. It says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a strange way of explaining things because what he describes here. Is the kind of organic reality to God's new temple, where each human life, you and I, we are like bricks being built upon this temple structure in which God's presence dwells. And it shows us what we are in the world and what a revolutionary reality the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And why I believe and why it's my strongest conviction that our highest call and our strongest priority is to consistently and constantly reform and seek the revival of the church of Jesus Christ. We want to see the world changed. But our greatest problem in our nation today is the failure of the church to be a pure and holy temple unto Jesus. And we can only influence our patch, which is Grace London, our church, But our invitation and our call and our dignified um, vocation before God is to be just such a temple. That as we gather together and we pray and long for God to bring about a day soon when we can be together physically, that as we gather together, this is the revolution. This is the way in which the world is being changed. This is our subversive activity to offer to Christ our worship as a holy temple. And in that way, as Paul puts it, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. What does the world need? The world needs the presence of God. And how does God, inhabit the, how does God inhabit the world by his presence? Well, he does so in his people, in the church. Let me just wrap this up for you. My encouragement is that you never lose heart when you look at the brokenness of the world. What, what do we expect? What do we expect? That nothing has changed in the, all the thousands of years of this world's history. There's always brokenness. Don't lose heart when you see the brokenness of the world. And don't also underestimate the power of Jesus and his plan. At first, it looks like nothing, doesn't it? A man riding into a city on a donkey and then going home to bed. Don't underestimate for a second the power of Christ's plan and the way in which he affects change on planet Earth. Rather, Let's trust him, let's trust his methods, and let's strive, both as individuals and as a church, to be a body of people whose passion is to enthrone Christ in our hearts and to worship him and to serve him with everything that we have. I believe with all my heart that this is the way history shows us that the world has changed. When the church is the church, when God's people put his word at the center, when they are filled with his powerful Holy Spirit, and when they believe in the true gospel, the pure gospel of Christ as our saviour, when all those things are true of us, often revival is the result. Cities turn to Christ. Nations can be turned around. Your family, you think about the impossibility of your family coming to know Jesus. This is what can happen when the church is revived. and This is Christ's intention. He came in on this donkey, he marched into Jerusalem to establish and to claim his rule. But where does he want to rule? He wants to rule in the seat of worship. He wants to build his new temple. This is his subversive act. This is how he's changing the world. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to him and surrender. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that when we reflect on you and when we consider your acts and your heart and your conduct and your character and your teaching, we see a Saviour who is so great and glorious and beyond us, but at the same time is someone who we can touch and know and feel close to someone who stoops down and rides a donkey into town. Somebody who is near to us in our own failings and struggles and who demonstrates a supreme confidence in the sovereignty of God to change change our lives, to change history, to draw near to us in suffering. And Father, I pray that you will Revive our love for you as our saviour king. Revive our trust in you as someone who's going to change the world by your gospel. Replace our priority Lord as being a people who will first and foremost offer you worship, offer you love. Be a people after your own heart. Engage in the humble acts, the unseen acts of love and of kindness and of mercy seeking to be salt and light in such a way that brings the meekness of the gospel and the gentleness of Christ into, into the lives of broken people in our city and our world. Help us to cast off the methods of this world and of the crowds who want to shout and proclaim Christ King in an aggressive way and rather embody, incarnate the way of Christ, our humble Saviour, our patient Saviour. We pray for you to continue changing the world. We pray that the leaven of your gospel and of the kingdom will have its potent effect in our nation and in our world. We thank you, Lord God, that we can look at our country today and see a country which is leagues away from the darkness of Rome. We thank you that we can look at a nation whose popular imagination and heart has been transformed so much beyond the ways and the abuses that used to prevail. We thank you for this, but Lord, we know the work isn't done. And we say, King Jesus, come and take your throne in this world. Come and bring about the transformation of our world that you promised, the leavening of the dough, the growth of the tree of the kingdom, the nations taking their nest in its branches as nation after nation declares publicly and emphatically that Jesus is King. We ask for this day, we long for these things, Lord. But in the meantime, Lord God, help us to understand our place as worshippers, as a temple, as those who offer you fealty and submission. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.